I had a couple of thoughts, and there might be other ideas. And maybe if you've got another idea, like genuinely, the nice thing about this is it's small enough that people can just rock up and say, you know, over lunch, I think it'd be really good to do something on this. Um, the two possible ideas I had, one of them was involving getting a bit a number of other people, and I'm not saying I could deliver all of these people, but I might be able to get one or, one or even two of them, but people like, uh, to, some, to do something on reaching post-Christian people um, and to get, see if we could get any input from Chris Watkin, who, by the way, if you haven't read this, you, I would, I, can I say this? You really should. I just think it's that for thinking people, just the amount of ideas that are generated by this book for preaching I think it's not a book about preaching at all. It's a book about how you understand contemporary culture and how the gospel relates to it. And some of you all have seen Brad East's recent review, which is quite, you know, engages with it quite critically. And there's some other stuff where you could say about it. But I've just found it so helpful at just thinking through how the gospel reframes debates. Anyway, so Andy's got some out there. But I might see if I could ask Chris if he could do a bit, a bit for us. Um, Rebecca McLaughlin, she might, I don't know whether she would actually come or whether she might do, we could do some stuff on the screen if not. Um, uh, Glenn Scrivener, who I think probably he might, might well be able to come. But people who are really good at this stuff, like they go, this is thinking through, you know, bright people about the post-Christian cultural moment, but also big evangelistic hearts who would just help do something that was not just exhortational on evangelism, but actually really helping us. And I would do some of that as well. Um, and I don't know. I might. This might be my last opportunity to wave this. But if you might, if you might by then have read the book and gone, I know everything Andrew thinks about this. In which case, you might not want to. But that was one idea. So reaching post-Christian people or engaging with post-Christendom or whatever. And then the other idea is to do something which I've had for a long time in the background and probably will do some time is to do something on Isaiah um, and to do a conference which is more based on a, again a biblical book rooted. And I imagine some of us are like, dispositionally, I would always want to just go through a book of the Bible. I love it. And I think partly I think, oh, it'd be nice to have something that was different in flavor to this year. Um, but I would just, it might be, I would just value your input on that. Like if over the next hour and a half, no, maybe not the next hour and a half, um, every question is prefaced by my opinion is, no, but like, um, but if I just do a, a little, and, and there might be another idea that you have. If you do have another idea, we're going to do a clapometer, Okay. So could you just give us a ripple or a clap according to doing something on reaching post-Christendom? Okay, that's that. All right, that's what we'll do. Thank you very much. Okay, I won't even ask about the other two. That sounds like that's hit the spot. So I'm pleased. I, I thought it might, but I also, because I'd like to do Isaiah, but I might want to do it in two years' time, not next year. That's what I'm, yeah? Or, yeah. Okay, thank you very much. Makes me feel very needy. I just need lots of people to, oh, clap me, clap me, or something. Um, but, uh, right. No, 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 no. Right, thank you. That is, that is excellent. Um, and obviously, this will be a last shout for the bookshop, but Andy has just served us superbly with uh, providing outstanding resources. And, uh, and, and the deals. So do, do make use of it. It's just a great place to be able to come and you know, buy books and so on. So, great. Well, I'll do a few other thank yous at the end. Did I just cut out again then? Did that cut out or is that just... No, okay, fine. Um, so, but I want to finish by looking at really the, the best bit of... Uh, the best way of looking at the Gospel of Matthew, which is to read it as a, a, as a book that gives us the Gospel. Um, an evangelical reading of Matthew... Um, and obviously there are many, I hope much of what we've already done is in that sense gospel-centered evangelical reading of Matthew. But I just, 
in the end, the purpose of Matthew is not to go, here's all these doctrines and a great vision of the church and a, lots of wisdom for life. In the end, Matthew is presenting us with Jesus Christ, isn't he? He's saying, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is who he is, what he did, why that's the best possible news, why his death saves you, why he's risen from the dead, and what he wants you to do about it. And that, in a way, I think would be the most fitting way to finish. And I particularly wanted to draw out some themes from Matthew 18 to 20, which I think, as again I've touched on, I think there's quite a lot of deep stuff in there that we haven't, we've mentioned but haven't really gone into. And some of this also, um, I haven't got, has anybody, someone near me got um, The Surprise by Jesus, the Dane Orland book? Is there somebody who can wave it? Because I thought, I'm sure somebody just handed it to me and, and Sam. Sam from Sam Amaro. Have you, can you just wave it around? You've got the Dane Ortland Surprised by Jesus book right there, right? So Sam just bought this. Okay, oh, there's one. Okay, good. Lots of copies. Wave this one. I, just wave it so that people can see the front. I really, I really, really enjoyed this book. And it's, it's about, it takes bits of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But it's just, I mean, I, I bought it on the strength of Gentle and Lowly, which obviously lots of us read during lockdown. And it was just one of those, the right the right book for the right time, right? It was just lots of people needed it at the time and it's just, it's great. But this book, in, in, I found in many ways actually equally good, um, but just presenting us with some of the extraordinary things that Jesus says and is in the four Gospels. And his section on Matthew I found particularly helpful. And so this, uh, this next page is drawn from, from, or much of it is drawn from that. Um, and so there's twin themes that you go. So we walk through Matthew chapter, in fact, let's turn there, shall we? Matthew chapter 18 and just, we won't read obviously all of Matthew 18 to 20, but hopefully we can sort of see as you, you know, you just kind of skim reminding yourselves of what's where in the gospel. That's helpful. Um, so Matthew 18 begins with this sort of section on who is the greatest and there's a lot about, a surprising amount about children in Matthew's gospel. Um, so again, I've often got Liz Green's question hovering in my mind. It's like, what would we lose if we lost Matthew, apart from the papacy and other things that we might lose? But actually, you wouldn't lose the emphasis on children, but it's definitely the gospel that speaks the most regularly about the importance of children and therefore a lot about humility um, as well. Then there's a the thing about temptations to sin, but it also, talk, in that sense, talks about potentially about children. Who are these little ones? And some would say that's just the disciples. Others would say it's children. Don't need to resolve that, really. But then you've got the lost sheep. You've got the need for forgiveness uh, when other sins against you. And then you've got the unforgiving servant. So do you, remember the, do you remember I said in the first day, one of the ways we could do this is forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. This section. And there's a lot on, on forgive us our sins as we forgive those. At the second half of chapter 18. Then you have the divorce encounter. Then you have another reference to children. Let the little children come to me, for to such belong the kingdom of heaven. Then the rich young ruler. And then Matthew 20, it's the workers in the vineyard. And then the mother of James is one of the worst, like, howlers. So imagine she must be assuming she got saved. I really hope she did. Um, um, wincing with embarrassment for the rest of eternity, going, yes, I am the mother of James and John. Like, and my only record, I appear in the record primarily being a little bit of a pushy parent. And then the two blind men. So... That's the, that's the sort of summary of the story of Matthew 18 to 20. And there's twin themes that run through it. And not the only ones, but there's lots here. And one of them is the contrast between the great ones and the little ones. So truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Which still has the power to surprise if we allow it to say what it means. Unless you change and become like little children, like infants, 
Really small people who are totally dependent for all of their needs. If you don't become like that, you will never enter the kingdom. Great ones, rich ones, powerful ones, rulers, they just can't get in. The only way they can get in is if they drop the greatness and the richness and the and they become like little ones. So it's so prominent in Matthew, again, along, blessed are the poor in spirit, right, the way through, such an important, the stone the builders rejected, all, the, all these themes, you, you see a child encapsulates that evangelical message of Matthew, you have to become little and in order that Jesus in your life might become great. And if you're not prepared to do that, if you won't humble yourself, you'll never be exalted. If you don't see your need for Christ, you will never end up being saved by him. But actually that means beautifully, the less you have, the more he is for you. And so it's only needy people who can come. And obviously that ties in so well with the, I'm gentle and lowly, take my yoke upon yourself and so on. Then in the very next section, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened round his neck and thrown into the sea. So, as I said, some people say that's specifically children because it's just drawing back the one of these little ones. So there's a connection between little, little children and little ones. And others are saying, no, 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 this is more like when he says, you know, don't worry, little flock, your father's good pleasure is to give you the kingdom. Don't worry, little ones. Hey, hey, little ones, have you caught any fish? You know, almost like the way we say, hey, crazy kids, you know, like talking about in, a, in an affectionate, diminutive way. And so I don't think we know. I don't think we can decide. But either way, don't cause them to stumble, whether they're disciples, children, or both. 10 to 14, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, the angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. Again, that's the, do- the doctrine of the guardian angel, uh, which we won't, we'll just leave sort of ho- hovering in the background. Um, what's, what's your angel doing right now? It's a kind of weird thought, isn't it? It's kind of maybe quite a nice comforting thought. I don't think they're only finding you parking spaces. Um, <laughs> but, but perhaps in overreaction to the parking spaces thing, we just never think about it. It's just an amazing thought. It's almost as if there are angels allocated to individuals. I mean, we don't talk much about angels. Um, and the only people who do talk much about angels often talk about them far too much. So it's kind of it's a difficult one to get right. But this is kind of right here. Jesus just throws it out there. Um, and uh, that then leads into the parable of the lost sheep. And again, let the, I mean, this is a very repeated theme, isn't it? Let the little children come to me and don't hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. So that's four different pericopes or four different little anecdotes or stories or illustrations which relate specifically to the theme of the little ones. That is not an accident, right? I mean, even, you know, we won't reopen the, you know, the Whittlesey problem. Um, with, with it's Matthew and Jesus, it's clearly Jesus. But Matthew has grouped them all together to go, I really want you to see this. And then, of course, he pulls out the, the con- confrontational component of it, which is, well, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, for whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And that's not the only text like that, of course, because you've also got the rich young ruler, who is you know, rich, young, and is he, actually, let me just check, is he described as, there's one of the pastors where he's described as a ruler and the other one he isn't. Um, so I'm going to get, I just don't want to over, um, overplay that one. Bear with me. No, he's just described as a man. 
But the, uh, the, I later described it as a young man, but again, the idea of, I've done everything, I've performed, I've done everything right. I was like, no, actually, the one thing you still lack. So you've got these, the great ones being brought down, and obviously lots against the Pharisees, but the little ones being lifted up, and it's a big theme, particularly, and many, all of those stories, are, of course, in chapters 18 to 20. So you've got this dynamic. One of the things that's going on in these chapters is a, as an interplay between the great ones and the little ones. And, the, of course, the mother. The reason why the mum comes off so badly is because after... Or, I don't know whether it chronologically happened this way, but Matthew's given us all of these. It's little ones, it's little ones, it's little children, it's humble, it's little ones. And then someone goes, so, can, <laughs> my, my sons would like to be at your right hand and your left hand. What about that? Well, he would like to be great. It's like, oh, facepalm. You know, it, and, and it looks particularly egregious in light of the previous material. But obviously, that's much of what Matthew's trying to communicate. It's blessed to the poor in spirit. The other thing that's going on is, I just, I love this. And this, I got this from Dane Ortland. I just found it so helpful. Is that a, an underlying question in chapters 18 to 20 is, what's the least I can do and still get in? What, what's the minimum? What's the, what's the lowest bar I could clear and still enter the kingdom? Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Which is just, you know, there's this extraordinary parable applying what it is that Peter is to do. But again, Peter's question there is really going, what's the least I can do? There's a, there is a limit, isn't there, to the grace that I'm prepared to show other people. So what, what is that limit? Seven times would be a lot. If someone does the same thing to me six times, by the seventh one, I'm going, this is your final chance. And of course, we always talk now about God, the God of second chances and so on, but this is the God of 490 chances. You know, it's just off the scale. There's no one's thinking about it in terms like that. How often? Well, what does your father do? But Peter's heart is, what's the littlest? Show me, show me the, the, yeah, the very least I can do and still get in. But then, of course, you have... There's a very similar sort of thing going on with the Pharisees. Like, what's the? Show me the minimum bar that I could claim. I, I want to be God. I might, I might want to divorce somebody, or say someone in our synagogue wants to divorce somebody, and they want to know what's the what's the minimum bar they have to clear. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, "Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause?" Which, as you may know, is a sort of technical term in the Shammai Hillel debates about. Can you divorce for any cause or only for something? So it's like a, it's a debate within Judaism. And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Like, you're saying, what's the, what's the, can, what's the minimum bar I have to clear? Obviously, I'm, can I do it for any reason or do I have to make sure I've proved that this has happened? And Jesus just shoots the bar straight up. It's the equivalent of, no, forgive them 70 times seven. It's like, no, no, he made them male and female. And in fact, I'm going to set the bar for divorce so high that my disciples are going to ask, well, if that's true, isn't it better not to get married at all? So they're, again, astonished. It's like, I'm shooting the bar. Right. You think it's down here, and I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Because you're asking just fundamentally the wrong question. What's the least I can do to get divorced? What's the least I can do to forgive? Then the rich young ruler, same thing happens. And behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Jesus says, you keep the commandments. He says, well, I already have. Now, you might think, well, this guy's not really saying, what's the least I could do? But, he, but when he's challenged to do the thing Jesus wants, he doesn't do it. So he clearly is. He's going, I want to know when I've cleared, when I've done all that is required. Even if that line is quite high, what I really want to know is to make sure that I'm above it. That's, that's the heart behind it, even if he's actually a very 
scrupulous, zealous, righteous in that sense person. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So again, bar shooting up, sell everything you have, which of course Jesus tragically knows this young man's not going to do and goes away sad. And Orton, Dale Orton applies all this. He says, look at the number of times this happens in these chapters. What they're really saying is, what is the minimum obedience I can render to get God off my back? Which is the heart of entitlement, isn't it? What's the thing I can do such that God is not giving me something, he's owing me something? If you really pushed it, how do I get God in my debt rather than the other way around? So if I was to forgive an eighth time or an eleventh time, if I was to do an extra commandment over and above the law, if I was to make my wife had done all of these things against me and I still didn't divorce her, but then she did that and then I divorced her, would I then be entitled to God's goodness towards me? How do I get God in my debt? How do I get God to owe me something? What's the, it's the heart of entitlement, which all of us struggle with. Like this, it's easy to go, oh, Pharisees, you know, oh, James's mum. You're like, no, no, no. If we, if we don't read Matthew and see that's in here, I know it's in here. Of course it is. I'd love to feel like I've done enough that I'm then, how much money can I give and then feel like all the rest is just mine? You know, I think about, you know, the, the face Basil Fawlty makes when he's just got that little bit of money after winning the money on the horse. And then you go, what's that, Basil? And she goes, it, 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 this is mine. It's like that sort of my precious. The same thing, you know, Gollum. It's like, I, I want something to be only mine. And therefore, I'll say, when, when have I given enough to God that the rest is for me? Same with our time, isn't it? What's enough devotion? What's enough? Well, and, it, and clearly, this is contrasted with the, the woman who, you know, pours the ointment all over Jesus said many others who would say I'm that's not how I'm thinking I'm not entitled I'm giving it all but this isn't just for preaching on giving of course this is the nature of the this is all the Christian life so I've, the, this is a contrast between the great and the little ones and there's a contrast between the entitles the people who feel if I just did this God would God should give me back what I've given him but the contrast between that and the people who come in surrender and say I'll give you is all yours Many who are first will be last, and the last first. It's the punchline of chapter 19. The punchline of the story with the rich young ruler. And similarly, it's the punchline of the story of the workers in the vineyard, which we'll look at in a moment. So the last will be first, and the first last. Which, in a way, is one of the good... If you had a one-line summary of Matthew, that's one of the ones you could give, isn't it? The first will be last, last will be first. John's proposal was that the one-line summary of Matthew was effectively... I am with you always to the very end of the age. That you start with Emmanuel, you finish with the per- perfect presence of Jesus forever, and even the all the way through the gospel, the idea that I am with you. I'm going to be there when you two or three are gathered in my name. I'm the, the presence of Jesus, really. And this is another way of telling, of saying, this is the heart of Matthew. The first will be last, or the humble will be exalted, and so on. It's beautiful. So these two themes running through Matthew 18 to 20. And that brings me on to and again within chapter 20 I, I think that the basically the workers in the vineyard story is Matthew's version of the parable of the lost sons um, because obviously the, the, the both the good Samaritan and the lost son we, which are the two sort of and most would say like the two great parables of Jesus the ones that we talk about the most probably the most famous ones in you know popular culture and the church are both in Luke but Matthew has, as we've seen, he has a version of a good Samaritan, but he also has a, a version of the, the lost sons, which I just absolutely adore. Um, and so 
I don't, various orders and ways in which we could, we could go around this. But you just see the sense of entitlement in the middle, in those quotes in the middle. All these I have kept, says the young man. And of course, it isn't just about a story about him. It's a story about the disciples' reaction to what happens to him. So he comes and says, what do I do? Jesus says, keep the law. He says, well, I have. All these I've kept. Is that enough? No, sell everything. Mm-hmm. But the story has got two parts. It's got the, you know, the young man who leaves, like the, if you, you could even say like the, lost, like the younger son, the younger brother. But then it's got the guys who are still there, who've been hanging out with Jesus the whole time, the older brothers. And they're alongside him and they go, well, we, we've left everything. What then will we have? I don't think that's to say that they've been living their whole lives motivated by entitlement. But I think it is to say that in that moment, they feel like, well, we've done exactly what you've just said. This guy came and said, what do you do? And you said, sell everything and give to the poor. Well, we have lost everything. I used to have a fishing business. Not anymore. I've been following you for the last three years. What are we going to get? And then that, of course, is at the the heart of this incredible story in Matthew 20. Uh, You have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the fierce heat. What's amazing about the story of the workers in the vineyard is that the people... that the the workers who've been there all day are not annoyed, really, that they haven't been given more. They're more annoyed that others have been given too much. It's just such a fascinating thing. It's just skewers, just this horrible entitlement that we have, which is I'd almost rather I had less for them to have much less than I would that we all got more. Because something in my heart measures my success more by how much better I am than someone else than in any absolute way. I'm I'm more likely to think about things relatively than absolutely. And therefore, I'm so annoyed that they've been given as much. It now makes me feel like I've got less than I did. Even if, in practice, I've got exactly what I was told, what I was promised. So let's just read Matthew 20, uh, verses 1 to 15. It's just such a wonderful story. I'll start in 19 and verse 30. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For, as in this whole story is explaining that point, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Why is he going out himself? We later find out he's got a steward. Why doesn't he send the steward? It's like he's come in person because he wants to find you. But he goes out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever's right, I'll give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, so that's four visits, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, visit number five, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. They're still waiting. They're still hoping vainly. It's not just laziness. These guys are hanging in there. They could have, Kenneth Bailey points out in his book on this parable, like, this, is just, this is a standard thing people still do in many parts of the world. They stand out waiting for work in various parts of the world. And, but by midday, they're like, yeah, I'm done. They, if the work hasn't come by the heat of the day, I'm not going to get any. But these guys are still there in late afternoon. He said to them, will you go into the vineyard too? And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. So again, the many of first will be last is, is the phrase that comes before the parable and immediately after it and then right in the middle, beginning with the last up to the first, which is clearly intentional, isn't it? It's just rhetorically to have a little callback. 
And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they'd receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who've borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. That's what's really got up their nose. You have made them equal to us, and we're better than that. Just Now, you could apply that to Jew-Gentile relations in the first century. You could apply it to people within your church who've been Christians a long time or people who've lived a better moral life than others. You could apply it to... People, the way the early church must have processed people like the, the robber who dies next to Jesus. All kinds of different ways you could go, where do you see that spirit in yourself? But what really gets up their nose is, you've made them equal to us. How dare you? But he replied to one of them, friends, I'm doing you no wrong. Take what belongs. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. You've got everything you wanted. Let's not make a fuss about what I've given to others. Or am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge, do you have the evil eye because of my generosity? So, the last will be first and the first last. Again, the, like the parable of the prodigal son, the, most of the, 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 the story leaves us with the grumbler. It doesn't leave us with the people who've got too much. They're done. They've, they've received grace and they're off to the races. They're happy. The story leaves us with the grumbler and it leaves us without resolving what happens next. What happened? What, what, uh, so many of the parables do this. They just leave a sort of dot, dot, dot. Does the older brother come into the party? I don't know. Do these guys go, yeah, do you know what, Fedil? Yeah, you're right. Or do they make a massive scene? Do they cause a huge argument? Do they therefore not get hired again the next day? Or what happens next? We don't know. Because the parable's designed to leave us. What are you going to do next? Are you going to begrudge my generosity? So, top left cloud. Matthew 21 to 15 focuses on an equation filled with amazing grace, which is resented by those who feel that they've earned their way to more. Grace is not only amazing, it is also, for certain types, infuriating. I really like that. I think that's so perceptive and, it, and it's exactly what this story presents us with just the i can't believe i mean great so obviously we always imagine ourselves singing the I'm, I'm the younger brother i'm the the workers who got paid too much and we are but it is weird how easy it is to slip into feeling we're on the other side of the ledger isn't it and that's the story of jonah like how angry he, he's so angry he, i'm preaching on this a couple of weeks so it's fresh in my mind but he's so angry he literally wants to die it's like, it is better for me to die than to live. Why? Because you've given, not because you haven't given me what I deserved, you've given them more than what they deserved. And I'm so angry about that, I'm ready to die. It's, and it, we all, we've all seen it in our hearts. And hopefully we're reveling in the grace of God enough that it doesn't dominate our, our I hope it isn't, but, but we must recognize it's there. And you, you, just, you can't, in that sense, can't preach grace too much. You can't, you obviously have to teach grace that transforms and you, you, you can't only say, just forgiven, no, no, you don't have to do anything. So you have to talk about how grace changes us. But that's not. But there's no such thing as overdoing grace. There's a thing of misrepresenting what grace is. Of course, that's, a, that's an issue. But if you preach biblical grace, you can't do that too much because it's always going to be a danger in the heart of the, the older brother heart, the workers, the, the all-day worker heart. Augustine Virtues are vices rather than virtues, so long as there is no reference to God in the matter. So again, it, you, you can do things, you can do good things with, without reference to God, 
which again, these you, you'd think these guys almost stand in for that, but you also have the sense that the rich young ruler might be doing that, and even that the, that the mum on behalf of James and John might be doing that. All these stories are kind of pointing to saying it, a virtue becomes a vice, not a virtue, if it isn't done for God. There, there is, back to um, the phrase I was looking at earlier, the sin behind the sin, and the sin behind the virtue in the Sermon on the Mount. And Luther's, of course, you know, big on this kind of thing. Grace is not hostile to sinners, only to unbelievers. So it's actually, people who are sinful love grace, but people who don't believe, they're the ones who really struggle with it. Paul Tournier, the strange paradox present on every page of the Gospels, and which we can verify any day, is that it is not guilt which is the obstacle to grace, as moralism supposes. On the contrary, it is the repression of guilt, which is the obstacle to grace. That's what stops you experiencing grace. It's not being wrong, it's repressing the fact that you're wrong. Sin doesn't stop you receiving grace. In fact, sin's almost a requirement for experiencing grace in a way. What, it, what you really can't receive grace and do is to suppress the reality of your sin. So again, it's in, the, in our culture, it's so important because people will hear Christian preaching, Christian morality as being an assault, something that excludes sinners. And of course, it doesn't at all. It excludes sinners who aren't prepared to admit that that's what they are. That's the problem. It's not the sin. We go, well, of course sinners are welcome. It's sinners who don't acknowledge it that are the problem. And that happens throughout the Gospels. And it's also likely to happen, you know, for some of us who say, that's my risk too. So I'm, that I am a sinner and I'm but inclined to think I'm above some of those things. Or I just don't feel I can be honest about it because of my position in the church. And maybe I can't tell anyone what is really going on. That's when, you, that's when grace doesn't, can't do its work. And that's when people collapse in ministry that's when that's when churches blow up because or entire ministries blow up because people have kept secrets about what they've been doing and ultimately behind it is a sense of i just can't i can't really admit the extent to which sin has got a grip in my life and if i had if i'd gone to even someone very privately and gone this is what's really going on none of this would have happened they would have said you must repent you may well need to take a leave of absence you might be out of ministry but at least your life will be spared but people don't they carry on with it ultimately because they've got an older brother workers in the vineyard heart because they feel I just can't admit that I need this, that I'm a sinner who's in need of grace as much as I really am Jonathan Edwards there is nothing that belongs to Christian experience that is more liable to a corrupt mixture than zeal it's a very you have to always read Jonathan Edwards twice don't you <laughs> but there's, there's nothing that's more likely to corrupt no 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 virtue in the Christian life that's more likely to lead to problems I think is what he means, than being zealous for God. Being zealous for God is great. So, but it's one of the great things about Christianity that's most likely to leave you in the soup if you don't realize it, how corrupted it can become. C.S. Lewis, our temptation is to look eagerly for the minimum that will be accepted. We are in fact, I love this analogy, we're in fact very like honest but reluctant taxpayers. We are very careful to pay no more than is necessary. That's what we are. God is owed everything. I know that. So I'll pay my tax, but I want to make sure I don't pay any more than the tax. That it, rather than thinking it's like a devotion of worship of breaking a jar over you and pouring it all out. It's like, once I've got here, then anything over and above that is a bonus for God. And we think of ourselves as, can do, ourselves as the giver and him as the recipient rather than the other way around. Which is, of course, is Paul and Augustine's favorite verse in many ways. What do you have that you didn't receive? What lunacy is this? You're talking as if you're the benefactor and he's the recipient. What nonsense. Adolf Schlatter. Jesus did not call the pious to repentance simply because he rejected their sin. 
but also because he condemned their righteousness. And then Robert Jensen, religion and irreligion are equally helpless. Which again was a sort of big theme of Tim Keller's ministry, isn't it? You know, you, there's two ways, two ways to be unsaved, two ways to flounder, the one of religion and the one of irreligion. So lots of different perspectives, but I, I just think those are, lots of, those are various quotes from people from various generations of the church trying to draw out what I think a lot of what Matthew 18 to 20 is getting at, that of entitlement. Entitlement is so opposed to grace. And I've, I've often, uh, I'll, I'll come to you in a second, thank you. Um, I've often I've done this with them. Um, if you have a sort of a scale of one to 10 on one side of the stage, I think I once did it in Eastbourne with actual scales of one to 10. On one side is what I think I have, and on the other side is what I think I deserve. And basically, if what you think you have is high and what you think you deserve is low, the result is gratitude. If what you think you deserve is high and what you think you have is low, then, of course, what you get is grumbling, entitlement, arrogance, and all sorts of other bad things. And so what, as Christian preachers or pastors, we're often trying to do is both simultaneously to show people how little they deserve and how much they have. But actually, in both ways, you you could end up going, "I, I really should have this. And I've only been given that. And I've been given more than these guys, but I feel like I should be given a lot more given what I deserve. And that, of course, is at the heart of the workers in the vineyard. But conceivably, James and John with the mother story and the rich young ruler. And conceivably, if you really press the point, you might say several of the other stories about the little ones and the Pharisees asking about divorce as well. Like They're very, very joined together in these three chapters. A very strong gospel emphasis about the need for us to diminish our sense of how much we're worth, and how much God has given us through grace. Sorry, yes, let's take that question. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Yeah, so she's saying, if the, I wonder if the Syrophoenician woman encounter is partly designed to, you know, we're trying to get the disciples to, get on, to see that they are not entitled to anything because actually this woman is entitled to the same as them. And clearly there is an overlap, isn't there, between the way in which a Jew might feel about a Gentile being accepted to... The, the way in which children might feel with the dogs being served at the table is similar to the way the workers in the vineyard who've worked all day feel about the Johnny-come-latelys being given the same amount. Obviously, it didn't quite do it for the disciples because several of them are going who is the greatest and yes can we sit at your right and left but yes I think that is definitely part of the same message yes Oh, I see what you mean. So Jesus' initial response to the Syrophoenician woman is almost speaking on behalf of what he knows the disciples think. Hey, it's not right to do this. And then eventually speaking more as what he thinks. That's a, that's a good way of putting it, which I hadn't thought of. But you're right. There is, they are, the disciples get, get rid of her, tell her to go away, are like the workers in the vineyard almost going, oh, these jokers, they don't deserve the same, same amount as we do. Well, so when he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel, that's actually not true. Hmm. Uh, it's just not. I mean, he already in Matthew eight, he said people come from the east and west. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Which is back to the question David asked yesterday about, or earlier today, like, is this something that Jesus Jesus changed his mind about? Clearly not. And he's not. My mum and I were talking about this. He, he's healed 
He's healed a Gentile already. That, you know, the Matthew 8 and 9, he does that. So that's not the issue, but he's trying to draw out that so faith. He away. Yeah. He says, well, of course, I've only sent the lost sheep of Israel, right? Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. Like, yes, no, that's really good. Yeah, it's really good. Luke? Serving on the mountain, we echo here. Blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit the earth. The meek, often we see that as, oh, us receiving it, but the meek are those who are going to celebrate these things happening, aren't they? Yeah. I also think there's something about Jesus' relationship to the Father, with the particular previous section of this as well. Entitlement, a transactional relationship, what's the minimum I can do? That's so antithetical to how the Father and the Son relate to each other. And he's bringing us into a, an idea of a Trinitarian relationship with he was saying, this is what it is like to relate to the relationship. Yes. No sense of like, why are you doing that to them or whatever? Yeah. It isn't just how we need to behave morally. It is, it's our relationship with God. Yes. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, I like, I like that. Yeah, I think there's, there's so much. Were you going to ask something as well? Yeah. Sort of, so if that passage that, you know, between the two, the two references to the sign of Jonah, um, that Jonah <laughs> where Jesus then goes and feeds 9,000 people and walks on water and says, you know, we're not getting a sign. Um, uh, but when Luke talks about the sign of Jonah, he's talking about how it's about the Ninevites who are going to repent. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious as to whether you think that's, whether those two things are independent, whether they are bookending that, <coughs> that section of So, as in. So you're curious as to whether I think the two th- which two things are independent, Luke and Matthew, or, or the two meanings of the sign of Jonah? So the, yeah, the, the two instances of the sign of Jonah and Matthew. Yeah, I think the way that Matthew uses the sign of Jonah is, is effectively, it's a judgment text, isn't it? It's saying, you, you, I'm, I'm going to, I will go into the fish and I will go into the belly of death and then come out again. But the reason he's using it is he said, you, you're a corrupt and wicked generation and you're asking for a sign. And the only one you're going to get, you're going to reject. And actually the, the judgment is coming because... The Ninevites repented and you won't. And the Queen of Sheba came to see it and you won't. So that's how Matthew is using it. So you're right, much of the sign of Jonah is not so much about what happens to him in the belly of the fish as it is about their lack of response to it. Um, I might just not have quite seen the connection between that and the comment Luke made, but I may be, I might, that is very possible that I'm just being mentally fading as a, as a result of talking for three days, I don't know. Um, yeah. I just had a question. Sorry, in which in which text? Oh, I, I would. I think I would be inclined to read that as just as a because he's now going to the, as a personalization. So the individualization of that story, so that the so that the the sticking the, the 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 poke of the parable is almost to the individual who's hearing. So like I have done, you know, you singular. Obviously in English because we have, we don't have a an, a you plural or you singular. It's not as easy to to pick up pick out because we almost hear all of you passages as addressed to us personally. But I think it's where he's going. This is a general problem. But then he talks to one of them. He's like, have, I haven't done you anything wrong, but you don't deserve any more than he does. Uh, so I think that's, prob- that's how I would assume it was meant. There may be more to it than that, but it's not something I've, I've thought about. Yeah. Just noticing in the rich young ruler passage that 
after he says he's kept all the, all the commands, Jesus says to him, if you would be perfect, and that's the teleos yes. word we discussed yesterday, I'd always, I guess, understood it as like Jesus pointing out something that he morally has fallen short of. But would you say there, if we take our reading... Yeah, if you would be complete. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and for precisely exactly, and for precisely this reason is that that you're not actually whole, because what you're doing is you're living these things to, on the basis that if you do all of them, you'll enter life, but actually in your heart, your heart, so your behaviour is out of step with your heart, because what your heart wants is to be told that's enough, enough now, you're done, and you've cleared the bar and you can just rest and not do any more, whereas to be a whole person is someone who says I'm going to give it all. That that's actually what it means to be teleos, to be complete, to be whole. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, this is um, related. Um, I'm going to expand on it a little bit, but this is um, a, a good section that Auckland brings this out on, un- really, unreligion and qualification. It says, the ancient Greeks told us that we should be moderate by knowing our inclinations. The Romans told us to be strong by ordering our lives. Buddhism tells us to be disillusioned by annihilating our consciousness. Hinduism tells us to be absorbed by merging our souls. Islam tells us to be submissive by subjecting our wills. Agnosticism tells us to be at peace by ignoring our doubts. Moralism tells us to be good by discharging our obligations. Only the gospel tells us to be free by acknowledging our failure. Christianity is the unreligion because it's the one faith whose founder tells us to bring not our doing but our need. And similarly, I think, well stated, in the kingdom of God, the one thing that qualifies you is knowing that you don't qualify, and the one thing that disqualifies you is thinking that you do, which is the the thrust of chapters 18 to 20, and the workers in the vineyard in particular. So the disciples' reaction to the children reminds us that we can have God's undivided attention without qualifying by our age or other social prerequisites because Jesus was disqualified for us. The rich young man teaches us we can have eternal life without qualifying by law-keeping as we trust in the only person who can truly say, all these things I have kept. The wrong assumptions of Peter and his friends show us we can have reward without qualifying by sacrifice because Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice that means we can freely receive the ultimate reward. And the workers who are hired teach we can have a full day's wage without qualifying by doing more work than anyone else because Jesus worked the whole day, bearing the burden of the day, and then on the cross was denied any wage at all. If you now go to the workers in the vineyard, and in a, in, in a little bit more detail, just there's a lovely contrast here with other versions of this story. Okay? So, Sifra Bechukotai, 2 verse 2 and 5, 2, you know, verse 5, effectively in the first century. And I shall turn to you. So what may this be compared? Well, there's a king who hired many workers, and there was one among them who worked with him for many days. The workers came to claim their wage, and he among them. This is just a rabbinic story at the same time. The king says to the worker, my son, I shall turn to you. These many did little work for me, and I'll give them a small wage. But as for you, there's a great reckoning that I'm destined to make with you. Hortland says, this is not evidence that the Jews were more self-righteous than other ancient people groups. Yet that is not because the Jews did not have a problem with self-righteousness, but because everyone else does. And this is a big part of our, you know, you think through the new perspective, which is a, you know, much less, I guess, in the theological news now than it was 10, 20 years ago, but still, you know, a, big, a huge, important contribution. One of the, the best responses you can make is not to say, oh yeah, you know, the Jews didn't have a problem with self-righteousness. 
is to say the Jews did not have a unique problem with self-righteousness because everyone has it. It's just the Jews are, well, he's the rabbi, who, contemporary rabbi who said, the Jews are just like everybody else, only more so. It's just a lovely, I think, it's, is it called Lionel Blue? I think he's the rabbi who said that. Really interesting comment. But that's the point here. So the Jews are, tell stories like this. Yeah, I, I give these, these haven't done much, so they get very little wages. But that's not a uniquely Jewish problem so that's why you can't cast the Jews as these sort of you know, villainous, penny-pinching moralists. It's like, no, no, no. The Jews are just putting on display what's in your heart as well. Every nation's like this. Rabbi Zira in, three, in the early, you know, late 3rd or early 4th century. A king had a vineyard for which he engaged many laborers, one of whom was especially apt and skillful. What did the king do? He took this laborer from his work and walked through the garden conversing with him. When the laborers came for their hire in the evening, the skillful laborer also appeared among them and received a full day's wages from the king. The other laborers were angry. This is very close parallel, of course. Angry at this and said, we've toiled the whole day. while well, this man has worked but two hours. Why does the king give him the full hire even as to us? The king said to them, why are you angry? Through his skill, he's done more in the two hours than you've done all day. But notice how different that is from the spirit of Jesus. Jesus is not saying, yes, these guys have done more in the little bit they have than you have. He's saying, I know they haven't done as much as you. It's my generosity that makes the difference, not their work. That's the doctrine of grace in a story. And it's so beautiful. I'm, I'm grateful that in many ways, as much as I obviously wouldn't agree with this rabbi, I'm so grateful they wrote things like this because they just help you tighten the contrast or turn up the contrast between Christianity and everything else. And so, as I said, this isn't a kind of, this isn't dunking on the Jews. It's just actually the Jews are articulating what all people think, which is if somebody late in the day was to be given more, it must be because they've been more productive with the time they had. And Jesus said, no, it's because of my generosity and nothing else. Because it's grace, there's nothing. Oh, I mean, we can carry on with that, but um, that's, uh, that's not, you, you didn't come here for me, my singing. Any questions on the sort of workers in the vineyard, grace? Gospel in Matthew 18 to 20, hoopla. Yeah. Do you think the Jews, when Jesus' hearers would have known these other versions? Well, not the one that hadn't been written for another 300 years, no. Um, I, 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 think it's hard, I think it's hard to say, but I, it's hard to say whether the first century one. Rabbinic Judaism doesn't really pick up until after the destruction of the temple. There are early, obviously, rabbinic writings, and we can't always date them accurately. But really what we now think of as the rabbinic period starts not just after the destruction of the temple, it's after the Bar Kochba revolt in 135, it, it, with, with, in the form that we think of it now. So the Talmud and that, that sort of period. Because, of course, it's adjusting to life post the temple, post land. So what do you do then? Um, so I would read it as if the answer is no, but this isn't so much for, this is what Matthew meant, this is just a beautiful way of contrasting what Jesus meant with what the rabbis would say, and as I say, on behalf of humanity generally. I do think we have to be careful not to do this in an anti-Semitic way, right? I just think it's important. But, but that's why I make that point as a sort of way of expressing a more broad principle. But this is, that is obviously, because they are Jewish teachers who use the same kind of stories, it's an exceptional example of that comparison. Luke. If you want to do a shorthand of avoiding that, there is a Buddhist version of the prodigal son story. Is there really? A Buddhist version of the prodigal son story. Son basically goes back and works really hard for the father. Really? Um, there's some just, there's some I've never heard that. Whether or not the father kind of knows that it's the son and he's just watching him prove himself, or the father doesn't know until the son has worked really hard. To Ooh. Has anyone else read that or come across that? The Buddhist version of the prodigal son? No. Wow, that sounds great. It's, 
Yeah. A couple of the things, I mean, I, I, the one I, I, I haven't come across that, but the one I dug into, because it sounded too good to be true when I first heard it, was, you know, the last words of the Buddha thing against the last words of Jesus, you know, work hard to gain your own salvation. I was like, there's no way that's the last words of the Buddha. That's a Christian apologetic website making it up. And I dug into it. I was like, no, that is, that is what he said. You know, Strive without ceasing. But, and I, I really dug into, like, you know, the Sanskrit. Obviously, I can't read it, but I went in lots of sources of different scholars debating what exactly it meant. But yeah, that idea that the dying words of the Buddha are strive without ceasing and the dying words of Jesus are it is finished. Like, and so I, I, I would actually be very prepared to, <laughs> to assume that it wasn't just an online thing, that it sounds like the kind of thing be, they may well have said. That's fascinating. I'd love to look into that. John. I think I am convinced that Matthew is, is worth reading. <laughs> okay. That's it. Sorry, that line, for those who didn't hear it, was, I think I am convinced that Matthew is worth reading. There was a comma at the end. Um, and I wasn't going to do a shameless um, ad for my book on bookstore, <laughs> which is charging for um, the importance of Mark's gospel. Yes. Um, but I think that in preaching on Matthew, often I've felt there are a number of segments which are you know, fruitful preaching sections, but sometimes seeing the flow of it has, of the whole book, mm -hmm. has been difficult. And I, I, I was kind of turning to R.T. France, mm -hmm. who, who says, you know, from chapter 16 to 28, there is a geographical reading from Galilee to Jerusalem, then back to Galilee. Um, and he makes this comment um, that um, then we appreciate the power of it as a work of literature, not simply as a source of theological or historical data. <coughs> so, so, so how, how, how do we, how do we kind of live in the flow of Matthew's gospel so that we see it as a, a flowing story rather than some floating icebergs? Hmm. So how do you, there is a danger is, I think what you're saying is I think there is a danger to providing lots of different reading slices of Matthew like this, where there's a doctrinal take and a gospel take and a typological, all that stuff, that you actually lose the story of Matthew as a whole and you, don't, you lose the flow. It just becomes a repository of different bits of information and interesting ways of thinking. And that is absolutely, that, of course, that is a danger. I think, I think the way you do it is by zeroing in on one of these and telling the story that way and then coming back and telling the story another way and telling the story another way because I think the flow is itself what can be done in multiple different ways. Uh, that's what I'm trying to do here anyway is to... There is a way of telling the flow of the whole of Matthew as a wisdom story. There's another way that tells it as a gospel, you have to humble yourself and have nothing story. There's another way of telling it, which is as a typology of the whole of Israel's entire narrative. There's another way of telling it, which is a, a, a probably the doctrinal one is the least story-ish, and that's the one which I would therefore, we actually spent kind of the least time on. But I think there's lots of ways of doing the flow. You, France is saying you could do it geographically as well. Um, but obviously in a, in, a, in a conference setting, I feel like we can all go, let's look at it this way for a couple of hours. Okay, put that one down. Let's put on another pair of glasses, look at it that way. That's the, that's the goal. But I, you're right that if we were to preach it like this, people would just be like, what on earth is this? I feel like you're jumping around all the time and circling back to the same few texts, but with different perspectives. So I would never preach it like this. Um, I might preach you like one page of it, but I certainly wouldn't do it in, in, in this way. And I think that's, you've got to retain that. There's obviously a different sort of setting, but... Um, I hope there's, it's not don't do the flow, it's just do the flow lots of different ways. I would probably be my short version, I think. Okay, should we go to the cross?
which weirdly, until now, we haven't talked about at all, you know, given how the famous comment about the passion narrative with the extended introduction, uh, which I think was originally said of Mark, but is clearly true of all the Gospels in a way. Um, but one of the ways I like, again, this might fall foul of what John's saying about losing the flow, but what, one of the ways I like to look at Matthew 27, and it's particularly true of Mark 15 as well, is through the lens of irony, through the lens of double meaning and drawing out. So when I preach Good Friday messages or do just sort of read, I, quite, I like, often quite like just reading the Bible, reading the, the cross narrative on, on Good Friday in a church setting and then just doing a reading with a few comments as I go because the power, the story is so powerful in itself. Um, but uh, some of the double meanings of Good Friday. So before we even get to Jesus, so if we start with, the, where's the pointy pointy? There. Even just, you start with the story of Judas. He departed and went and hanged himself. And I made reference to Ahithophel before on this. I just, there is, before we get to the death of Jesus, there is, you, you've got a Davidic note and a, and a double meaning, really, to what even happens to Judas, because readers of the story of Samuel will know that Ahithophel betrayed David, and then David, as a result, David had to leave the city and head over the Mount of Olives, weeping and groveling, really. You know, there was loads of howling and all that, lamenting, people cursing him and spitting on him. And then when he came back into the city in triumph to reclaim the kingdom from Absalom, having been outmaneuvered, because... The advice that he the advice he got was better, and you know, Lord made make foolish the counsel of Ahithophel, all that sort of stuff. That when he came back, the Ahithophel hung himself because he realised this is this has failed. I have betrayed, but the king has been vindicated, and ultimately I have been exposed as the charlatan I am. And so he went away and hanged himself. And I think it's important for it's not just an apologetic point. This is how you square. The death of Judas here, Judas hung himself, Judas's bowels spilled out over the ground, what's all, that go- what's all that about? I think one of the things that's going on there is that Matthew is presenting Judas as Ahithophel, and Luke in Acts is presenting Judas as Absalom, and they're both ref- which is why the deaths are couched in different ways. And so the falling headlong and the hanging, of course, they're not irreconcilable, but they're, they're described in very different ways in order to say, for Matthew's purposes, this is... Ahithophel, because Jesus is David, and, and, and the betrayal is setting up, and the fact that he's hanging himself sets up the fact that the attentive reader will know this king is going to leave the city in grief and sorrow and be driven out of the city of which he is rightfully the king, but he is going to return to it and be vindicated. Because if you know the Ahithophel story, you know that's what happens to David. Does that make sense? Okay. I'm just looking. I had a few faces like this. I was thinking, I just want to check that's that's landed. Um, but I think, again, and that some of us, I expect, we're going, Hithophel, a little bit fuzzy, but the story of, you know, in 2 Samuel 15, 16, 17, 18, the revolt of Absalom and, and the people who stay with him and the people who don't. Um, so there's a double meaning even of the Judah story. You think this is before we get to the cross, like, but you would, you would know. It's sort of like those of, if he who has ears, let him hear. You're going, oh, okay. So the, the traitor's hung himself already Oh, that means vindication is coming. Of course, there's a huge double meaning in one of the most ironic statements, even when the fact that the people who make the big claims of Christology in Matthew 27 are his enemies who are saying, are you the Son of God? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? And he says, well, you've said so. Like I'm quoting back from your own lips. And obviously, that's a very well-known double meaning. But just the idea that 
the people who make the big claims for Jesus' identity are the people who don't believe it. And that happens over and over again in this story. The double meaning of Bar Abbas, which obviously Barabbas, we pronounce it, but son of the father. You can probably recognize that. Bar means son, Abba, father. And they had a notorious prisoner called son of the father who, for whom Jesus was going to be exchanged. And literally they put, it, put them up before everybody. And it's like, you know, I don't know, reality TV show, Love Island. Or, you know, who, who, who should we kick out? Like, it's like a sort of a poll. Like, what do you think, guys? Like I did earlier. What, should we do a clapometer for this theme or that? I mean, it's just bizarre. But he said, no, they had a notorious prisoner who'd actually guilty of all of the things of which Jesus is innocent. Barabbas had committed murder as part of an insurrection. So we assume he is lit, genuinely challenging the authority of Caesar. That's the reason he's been up on crucifixion charges. Jesus is completely innocent of that. In fact, Jesus has explicitly said, that's not what I'm doing. I am the true king, but that's not the, I'm, not, I'm not here to overthrow Caesar at all. My kingdom is not of this world. And yet you have the two of them placed up against one another, and the people look and they say, Barabbas is guilty of everything of which Jesus is innocent. Oh yeah, give us Barabbas. We'll let him go and not Jesus. And so it's like the, it is the clearest expression of the substitutionary effect of the cross in narrative form that I know of, because Barabbas, of course, then gets to go home, we assume. I mean, he's freed. And he sort of gets to wander around. And I often think this, like, what happens when he gets home that night? And his, I don't know, his wife, his kids, like, again, when, bursting into tears, going, we never thought we'd see you again. Well, what happened? And he's just like, well, this, this, this man substituted for me. And he took the punishment of every. Did, I wonder if Barabbas stayed and watched it. I'm at, imagine in a macabre way, maybe he did. Maybe he was like, that lash was meant to be for me. Those nails are supposed to go through here, and they've gone through him. He has been substituted for me. And it's just such a powerful, when you read, substitution isn't just an abstract doctrine of atonement theology. It's actually acted out in the life of this one man. And of course, in, a, in another way, as we'll see in a moment, Simon of Cyrene, who's also in a way carrying the cross in a literal way. So you've got these two characters who get brought into the story as if to illustrate the effect of the atonement in for real people, not just I mean, we're real people too, but you know what I mean? Not, not just in a sort of model of the atonement way, but like this actually happened to you on that day. You went home free and you were about to be killed in agony. The irony of the phrase, I'm innocent of this man's blood, see to it yourselves. And where the, where the, where the guilt for the blood goes, um, and actually you're going to have the blood, and of course the people then say, well, his blood be on us and on our children. Like We are happy to take responsibility for killing this man. Just the idea, and Pilate, you know, the sort of the famous washing your hands idea. It was like, I, I, don't, I don't want this man's blood on me. Who's going to take responsibility for this? And of course, it's in a way, none of them are. And in a way, all of them are. They're all taking responsibility for killing Jesus. And we are intended to see ourselves in the crowd of people going, oh yeah, we'll take responsibility for killing him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And again, the double meaning here is almost too obvious to draw out, isn't it? That they are dressing him in a kingly robe and with a royal crown. Because, and they think they're making fun of him, but in fact, they are hailing him. So again, as we, as we saw in the end of the worship time yesterday, all hail, Redeemer, hail. It's like the only people who say hail in the New Testament are people who are making fun of Jesus. They're kind of, Ave Caesar, Ave, look at this. Sort of, let's stand here with our salutes. But the great inversion is, of course, that is exactly what they are doing. They are reclaiming him as king. That Even in killing him, they are dressing him like a king, clothing him in royal robes and, uh, and putting a reed in his right hand. 
They found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. Again, the double meaning here, that Simon is both physically helping a man who's too weak to carry a cross on his own, but is also living out the life of the disciple. And so this is exactly what you are called to do. Be summoned out of the crowd and come and stand, if necessary, alone with this man on his way to the cross and carry, take the weight with him and take all the shame that goes with it. And of course, we can be pretty confident that Simon and his sons were saved because in Mark, we're given his names, which obviously came through in the kids' book of Alexander and Rufus. And that usually, Richard Borkham is very good on this, but just makes the case, when you get random name dropping in the New Testament, people who there's absolutely no reason to mention their name, but the gospel writers do, is because they're known to the Christian community. So they're almost like, what is eyewitness? So they go, Simon and Serena, you know, the guy, Alex and, Alexander and Rufus, they're in the church. So it's almost like leveraging their testimony as a way of validating that this really happened. Borkham is book Jesus and the eyewitnesses is great on that and so I think there's a it's pretty you know pretty compelling case that Simon and his kids got saved basically that this wasn't just a metaphor it wasn't just a a physical thing it became a, a, a spiritual reality as well they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall but he wouldn't drink it and so there's interesting the the things that Jesus does and doesn't drink in the in the story are fascinating aren't they we know because in in John's gospel we get the I'm thirsty so there's a moment where he says, no, I will not drink because I'm not going to dull, the, I'm not going to take effectively the sedative that you're offering me because this is so excruciating. So he says, actually, no, I will not drink that because I am going to drink the cup of the wrath of God, which is being presented to me. I, I can't drink this because I need to drink that. But then there does come a moment where at the very end when he's calling Elijah, he does drink it and effectively says, now it's all done. Father, you know, why have you forsaken me or... I commit my hand, commit my spirit into your hands, and so on. Just back to Isaiah 51 about the, the, the cup filled with well mixed wine into which the, the wrath of God has been poured. Of course, the double meanings of the phrase, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. Again, the irony here is almost a lot of these are double ironies. Like they are saying it ironically. And in a way, of course, the joke is that it, I'd say the joke is a strange word to use for it, but that it's actually. You know, sometimes you see those tweets where somebody writes this, but unironically. And I feel like this is a bit like what we're supposed to think about that. It's like they're saying it ironically, but actually it's unironic. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And that wonderful line, um, is it T.R. Glover? Who said about, you know, that when, when people are talking, mocking, mocking Jesus under the name of Caesar, they said, of course, the day was going to come where people will call their dogs Nero and their sons Paul, Peter, James. It was just amazing. It was just like, but, the, but again, they're saying, this is the king of the Jews, ha, ha, ha. And you're like, man, if you just, the benefit of a couple of hundred years or a couple of thousand years, you'll go, really? And the last time you met somebody called, I don't know, Tiberius or Nero, you know what I mean? It, it, it just, it, 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 the whole world's been turned on its head. They're saying, this is the king of the Jews. How ridiculous is that? It's like, no, it really is the king of the Jews. You, and, and that, even the pilots, what I have written, I have written. Just, yes, this is going to stay. For as long as this story is told, it will be uttered in memory of him. He said, this is the king of the Jews. And he didn't think he meant it, but he did. Similarly, he saved others. He cannot save himself, which, of course, is meant in mockery, but is completely true. It's only because he is saving others that he can't save himself. He could save himself, of course. He could come down off the cross, but if he did, he wouldn't be saving others. So you're absolutely right. You're, you're laughing, yeah, he can't save himself. You think... Well, actually, that's true. You're right. I cannot both save myself and you. And so I have to choose. And I'm going to choose to save you rather than myself. 
the my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Obviously, deep uh, double meaning there because initially people hear it and say that he thinks God's abandoned him and there's people can overdo overdo that in the sense of you know the father turns his face away I don't want to open that kind of worms too much but you know I probably already have but you know that sort of idea this is is the breaking of the trinity and I just I don't buy that and I think that Jesus knows as well as anybody else at the time how Psalm 22 ends so said, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from the words of my groaning? All who mock, see me mock me. They spit at me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. But that's not where the psalm ends. It goes through and says, actually, they are going to proclaim his righteousness to people yet unborn that he has done it. And that's why Jesus is also able to say in Luke, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You don't say that if you think the, the Trinity's broken and the Father's not even looking. So actually, this is a cry of forsakenness, but it's a forsakenness that is going to end in vindication. And Jesus knows that perfectly well, I think. The double meaning of the tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection they went into the holy city and appeared to many. As I've said, strange story, we commented on a couple of the, the meanings and resonances I, I, yesterday I think it was or maybe the day before. The idea that it is not even just the resurrection of Jesus that opened the tombs but in the story, the way Matthew tells it, it's actually almost the, the death of Jesus that opens the tombs which is what leads to this like oddity of so when you press into it literally, the bodies were falling asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection almost makes it sound like they got raised from the dead on Good Friday and then stayed in the tomb for two days and then came out on Sunday and went, it's me! I mean, that's it is a bit of a weird like, in the way you read it. And for those who are interested in becoming nerdy on this, um, on the Mere Fidelity podcast, we did a whole episode on that little, on that, that three verses, just go, what are the various ways we could read this and what do we, what do we think is good and bad? And, which is basically a, me going, I think this, but Alistair, what do you think? And then him helping us. But, um, but again, the double meaning there of the idea that the death of Jesus hasn't just broken the power of death for him, it's broken the power of it for everyone else. And then, you know, probably the funniest of the double meanings of Good Friday, it's an amazing statement, you have a guard of soldiers, Go make the tomb as secure as you can. <laughs> and Russell Moore just is one of my favorite tweets I've ever seen, actually. Just, just puts it like, good luck with that. It's just really, you know, you have a God of soldiers, make it as secure as you can. Like, what do you want me to do? Like, the stone's there. As I'm standing here. It's like, is, do you want me to staple it to the ground? Like, what are you talking about? Like, how do you make it as secure as you can? It's like, there is nothing you can do that is going to hold back the stone when the one who move the stone, steps out of it. Like, it's just impossible. And it's like the irony that we're intended to actually find funny, I think, and going, you know, make it, all right, we will make it as secure as we can. We'll all stand here. Like, what, what on earth could I have done differently? And then it goes, then the guards became like dead men. I might just finish this and then, then we'll take final questions so just because we've got one more page um, on the resurrection. And, uh, and then we will pray and, and finish. Oh, no, that's wrong. Two resurrection encounters. So you have these, uh, the Re Matthew 28, of course, you could spit several different ways. You have the guards and the conspiracy. You have the good news versus the, you know, the, the bad news version and then the good news version. Um, but you have, you know, the, there is a report in both halves of Matthew 28. There is the true report of what happened, verses 1 to 6. So what really happened is there was an earthquake, there was an angel. Jesus is risen and the guards are terrified, summarized in a word as... He is risen. I mean, it's just in one word, the whole Christian gospel. You know, he is. That, that's you, you're silly a bit to go summarize. But like, if you said to summarize the gospel of Matthew in a word, like, okay, but he is risen. 
There's three words in English, sadly, but um, works well. In, it's a joke that only works in other languages. Um, but again, the false report, similarly, the false report will happen. Well, there was a plot, and money was given to people, and Jesus has been stolen, and the guards lie about it. And again, in a word, a klepsan, where we get the word kleptomania or something like that. They, they stole it. And that's really the, you know, to some degree, unless you go, Jesus didn't, wasn't really dead, which, of course, is the official Muslim line, you, you got those two options. They stole it. Either the guard stole it or the disciples stole it. But either that happened, so either he has risen or they stole it. The true report, the false report, just contrasted beautifully. And then, of course, the moments of going to Galilee, tell the disciples Jesus is going to Galilee. The disciples then do go to Galilee as Jesus directs them. There is a moment of worship. It's, again, very important in light of that. Worship no one except God alone. Women meet Jesus and worship him but they are afraid. The disciples meet Jesus and worship him, but some doubt. And then, of course, a commission, which ends both halves of Matthew 28. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and they will see me. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. There's a couple of other things we could draw out here on the, the, the role of the, you know, the tomb and, Virgin, uh, and Joseph of Arimathea. So one of them is that the, the tombs, interestingly, the, the Bible starts with, a, the, the Gospels start with a virgin's womb and finishes with a virgin tomb, which kind of works in part because the words womb and tomb rhyme, but I quite like the fact that Joseph of Arimathea puts him in a new tomb that's never been used. I do think it's significant. There is, and there is clearly, there is something womb-like about a tomb. It's the place where things are just before they come back to life again in Jesus' case. So there is a sort of bursting forth from this sort of hidden dark cavity out into new life that is both at the beginning and the end of the gospel. And the virgin womb, virgin tomb, I think is really, really great. There is the guards becoming like dead men. It's another thing to notice, obviously. Why do you look for the dead among the living? You could have said, you know, the guards, the living people become dead just as the dead man becomes alive. It's not just they were scared. It's like these living ones fell to the ground and died and the one who was lying down dead now is back alive again. There's um, Joseph of Arimathea, is, and I wish we had more time on him, is a very interesting character. Because the gospel also begins and ends with a silent, righteous Joseph. Which is just quite nice. And I'm not sure it's, unin- I'm not sure it's an accident. You have Joseph, so neither, the, neither of the Josephs say anything. So we, obviously Joseph presumably is, does Joseph, Jesus' father, clearly must say something. But in Matthew he doesn't. Um, he's told things. He has things appeared to him and revealed to him, but he's not a conversationalist. Uh, and neither is Joseph of Arimathea, this sort of shadowy, silent man. What do we really know about him? Um, but he is, uh, so Joseph of Arimathea represents, again, the, the, he's a righteous man, a dikaios, a man who is a man of justice, a man of righteousness, just like his namesake at the start of the gospel. So beginning and end with a silent, um, a silent Joseph. But also we have proof in the existence of Joseph of Arimathea, because he's a wealthy man who's prepared to put his reputation on the line and follow Jesus, we have proof that all things are possible. Because Jesus has said, it is impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, but with God all things are possible. And now we know, yeah, God can do anything. Like the most extraordinary, of all of the miracles in this gospel, people rising from the dead, being healed of leprosy, blind eyes open, lame men walking, demons being cast out. The one thing Jesus has said, this never happens unless the miraculous power of God's at work is a rich man being saved. And as the gospel ends, it says, this does happen. God can do anything. He can even save people who've got as much money as we have. It's amazing. I think you can also, Bruno is good on this, you can also see um, in the false report, the plot, the danger that is wrought by 
and basically how many evils are brought about because people want to cover, cover things up, keep out of trouble, and pay money. That actually, it's just the, the, the essence of every conspiracy right there, isn't it? That they, the evils that are motivated by money and keeping out of trouble. We, let's keep our names out of the papers. Let's make sure no one looks at us. This will be a bit of a scandal. Let's sweep it under the carpet and pay people to keep quiet. Non-disclosure agreements. Eh? Not a new thing in that sense. Yeah, we'll pay you. Don't say anything. It's scary, isn't it? Well, the, the evil people will do to keep their name their reputation preserved and to keep money. And even just this, um, I can't remember where I read this, but one of the guys who was commenting on this uh, said that even in the words when, uh, let me just, um, bear with me just to turn to the exactly which text it's in. Um, yeah, so when they say then, the, when the angel says, come, see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. Behold, he's going with you. Jesus, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This word, which obviously is not unique to Matthew at all. It's a very common biblical word. But I really enjoyed the person who said, the word, it's like in English, we don't really have a good equivalent of it. But it's, also, it's a little bit like a mixture of voila and achtung. Um, so, which I thought was really good because it, voila, it's like, hey, here, here he is, look. Which we don't really have a one word equivalent of in English, but also achtung, like attention, emergency, you know, watch out, here he comes. And I just thought it was a really nice way of capturing the meaning of, of that sort of behold, because of course, a dead man's just come back to life. And then, final comment on the whole book this uh, beautiful way in which Matthew finishes with the Great Commission. Just notice all the alls. Right? I think there's at least five, right? Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So, all, of, so all authority, all nations, all persons of the Trinity, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, all, you know, all my commands. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age, all time. So all authority, all nations, all the Trinity, all I commanded, all time. It's just the most comprehensive ending you could have to this amazing gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your mighty words, this extraordinary gospel, the marvels of Jesus Christ, who it just puts on display in such beautiful ways, the, the grace, the humility, the tenderness, the clarity, the judgment and justice, the insight, the wisdom, and many, many other things we've reflected on, and the many we haven't. Thank you that Jesus lived and died and rose. Thank you that dying, he destroyed our death and rising, he restored our life. Thank you that Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Hallelujah. We are so grateful for the Lord Jesus and for all that his life, death, and resurrection means. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Thank you. thank you very much. I'm, I'm tempted to do this, but I won't. But thank you. Um, I wondered, I just, but we might have five minutes for any, I, I went through that last 20 minutes because I wanted to do that in a more devotional way. You know, way rather than just have lots of questions. But there might be, a, a, even if we, we've probably got room for about five minutes of questions, and then I want to do a few thank yous before we conclude. So, is there anything like that that sort of needs clarifying or confirming or querying? Yeah, Steve. Um, so, the people that rose during.
<laughs> oh no, I really thought I'd get away with that. NT Wright, I think, says it just got put earlier that it's going to happen at the resurrection. Yeah. Yes. Is that true? And secondly, what happened? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, yeah, I, I think, so is, it, is the text deliberately displaced in order to show, I think that is a good explanation. And it may have, I don't actually remember if it's that the case Alistair made as well on the discussion we had, uh, but it might genuinely be worth listening to. So we explored a number of possibilities and I don't remember whether he sketched it and said, I don't think this or sketched it and said, I do. But I think that's, I think that's a pretty plausible reading that, again, as we've seen, Matthew is often grouping material together to try and show the impact and meaning of it rather than just giving a strict chronology. And if it is, it A, gets around the weirdness of guys being raised from the dead and not coming out of their tombs for two days or 18 hours or 36 hours, which is pretty weird. But it also shows you that from Matthew's point of view, he's just trying to draw out the, meat, the fact that it's the death of Christ that brings our life and not just his resurrection. So I think that is a plausible reading. I don't think it's the only one, but I think it's, it's quite a good one. As to what happened to them, I think we've got to go there the same thing as what happened to Lazarus. I think he's the only other... We don't know about the widow of Nain's son. Um, and... Gosh, my mind's got about Jairus' daughter, but we don't remember, we don't know what happened to her. Whereas with Lazarus, we do get the sense that Lazarus is raised and is, you know, still around for a while and then dies naturally a bit later. And that that is effectively what these guys have done. And of course, remember, Lazarus is raised even longer after dying than, than you know, these people are, would if they were remaining in the tomb. So Lazarus dead four days. So, um, but it is a very weird story nevertheless. And I, I can't really, you know, I, it makes me go, Jesus' death brings... An earth, I think there's an earthquake at his death and there's an earthquake at his resurrection. I think that's significant. There's something earth-shattering about it, both his death and his life. But as to where, where it happened and why we don't know more about it, I've got no idea. It's one of those enjoyable quirks. Yes, sir? With how much mission is both uh, emphasised in Matthew's gospel, it's funny how little Matthew's gospel is used in evangelistic ways. Things like evangelistic courses or Bible studies... This last section in particular, I'm like, why don't we use it so much? I'd love to, and I think a lot of people say it's the emphasis on ethics and the issue of the ultimate knowledge means it's not as useful. What would you say to that? What do you think we're missing? Yeah, obviously, it'd be odd of me to finish this conference saying, yeah, you're right. Here's all the reasons why we shouldn't use Matthew evangelistically. No, I, I agree. I think the reason why people don't primarily is because of length. I think. I, I, think re- I don't think Matthew's any less readable than the other Gospels. Um, in fact, I think, I think the hardest Gospel to read and understand is John, I think. It's just because it's so mysterious and elliptical in lots of ways. But John is also very... The, the, the language is quite simple, but the concepts are much harder. Um, so that's probably why. But yes, I, I would love to see Matthew used more evangelistically. I'd love us to... you know to preach I think we do probably use it in in other ways but most people are joining I want a short gospel I want some and I so despite all the thing we've had about Mark actually Mark is the Mark is my favorite gospel to give to a new person um personally I just think it's just just the facts man you know that kind I mean I know it isn't and there's much more to it than that but I think it is the, the shortest version so that's what I like to use but that's not quite the same as not using it in evangelism I think Matthew's got so many takes on the gospel that you wouldn't otherwise have and I hope I've convinced Liz as well that if we didn't have Matthew we'd lose lots um, but yeah I, I, I think that's a good shout last question and then we'll, then we'll so, yeah great yeah yeah at the start of the gospel 
Jesus has said he's going to save the people from their sins and that he's going to baptize them in the Holy Spirit and with fire. Yeah. As I heard read through the gospel, I don't really feel like Matthew kind of really lands mm. how Jesus does either of those things. What's your thoughts on that? I think he lands the first one, but not the second one. And I, I think there are hints of it in the, the baptism in the spirit and in fire. But I think we had someone, who was I talking to about the fact that there is just very little pneumatology in Matthew? Like, surprisingly little. Who was that? That was Steve. Because it, it, that, that is, a, 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 I don't think, I've, I've, never, I've never got to the bottom of that. Like, why isn't the, the Holy Spirit more prominent in Matthew? Certainly, he's very prominent in Luke and very prominent in John. And he's very prominent in Luke, even though Luke is also going to write Acts, in which he is uber-prominent. So I find that a little puzzling. At the same time, the very last words of the gospel are saying, you need to baptize in the, in the threefold name, which is the only place we are explicitly given Trinitarian baptism. Um, in the New Testament is one of the most Trinitarian, in fact, arguably the best Trinitarian proof text in the whole Bible, Matthew 28. So, so there is, you're right, but I don't quite know what to make of the spirit thing. Whereas when it comes to saving people from their sins, I actually think that is much more explicit, um, as I hope much of the stuff we've done in the evangelical reading makes through and comes through, and even the characters in Matthew 27, as we've just seen, Simon and Barabbas, how that will work. Um, but yes, if Matthew had written a follow-up if we have Luke and Acts and John and Revelation, question mark, if Matthew had written a Matthew part two, what would he have said? And I think that's a, it's a fascinating. Maybe one day we could ask him. Okay. I, uh, we have been very well served by a whole bunch of people and I just want to honour and thank them and, then, and gi give a couple of them uh, something to say thank you very much. So, uh, have we still... Is, do we have Joshua in the house? Is he still here? Or is it? Yes, he is. So Joshua Taylor, just to start up. So Joshua's been the fix-it duck for, yeah, you, um, uh, for everything that's happened technically, and he's been running around doing and sorting all sorts of different things at different times and mysteriously magicking things away when they were going to be problems. And we're very, very grateful to Joshua. So hold your applause. Is Ben here? Ben has gone. All right. Could I give you something for Ben as well? Why don't you come out in a moment? Um, and then Diane, who is over there in the, we, we would call it pink dress, I think. Diane has been fabulous at working and serving. Probably, you may or may not have seen her. She's wearing a brightly colored dress. But other than that, you may not have seen her because she's been very in the background. But making sure that all of the meals and logistics and practical stuff happened and has worked really hard and done it all with a huge smile, as she always does. So I'm very grateful to her. And then there is the great Zoe, who you will always see sporting a, a you don't call it a onesie, you call it a jumpsuit. Okay, this, everyone calls it a jumpsuit. I'm the one who calls it a onesie. But Zoe, talk about service with a smile. Like Joe's professionalism and integrity and hard work and like for months and months and even just anticipating everything that needs to be done, which I don't realize at all, as you can tell. Um, but she goes, you've got to make sure we thought about this and this and this. All the communication, all of the planning, everything. The reason why, hopefully, it's been a smooth experience for you, even to the point of ensuring there was more pizza provided last night when it had run out. Um, it's a, she's a little bit like the person when they go to Jesus and say, they've run out of wine. You're like, they've run out of pizza. She's that kind of person, but has done the whole thing incredibly enthusiastically and warmly and kindly. So I wonder, could you guys all, just those three of you come out, and we just want to say thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Diane. Thank you, Ben and Josh. Thank you, Zoe. We are very grateful. Thank you. Woo!
We have also just kept, keep, keep applauding because we've also had a whole bunch of our young people who've been serving us, which is incredible. Now, most of them are not here, but is any of them still around? Any of them can wave? So yeah, Josh Fowler back there, great. And then at the back, thank you so much, guys. A lot of these guys have served you curry and run around clearing up. Thank you very much. They joined us for dinner a bit last night as a, a little way of saying thank you. But the reason, when I realized how much work they were doing is when I came back, um, I think in here after, maybe it was after the curry, and I found the entire room was just spotless and immaculate and flowers on the tables and water and everything ready for the next day. I was like, these guys have worked really hard. So thank you so much. Really appreciate it. So it sounds like we'll be doing something on reaching post-Christian people from July 2nd to July 4th next year. Um, and in the meantime, have a great year. May God bless you and see you very soon. Let's go and get lunch.